We're going to continue where we left off last time. And if you weren't here for that, let me just remind you where we left off. But as we're studying Ephesians chapter 1, we are looking at that section from verse 15 down to the end of the chapter where Paul prays for enlightenment, the prayer for enlightenment. And this is, of course, where we are in the context of the book at large. Recall that the first three chapters of the book are largely doctrinal. They're going to be focusing on the believer's blessings in Christ. It's full of declarative statements of who we are, who Christ is, what he's done for us, etc. However, when the, the second half of the book, when we get to that, it'll be very much focused on the behavior of the believer and the duty, not merely what we are to believe and know, but also what we are now to do in light of that. Uh, but this first half of the book of Ephesians really breaks down into these, these major thought units that we've been studying. First, we saw our possessions in Christ, that wonderful, glorious hymn that was from the first few uh, verses of the chapter all the way up to verse 14. But then we see a clear transition in verse 15 where Paul begins to pray for the Ephesian believers, a prayer for enlightenment. Now, last time, if you were with us, then you may be uh, familiar with this, but the purpose of Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 23 is to pray for his readers so that they are encouraged and equipped to understand the precious truths that he is teaching to them. And so he's asking God for this enlightenment. In fact, this is the first of two prayers that we're going to see through the book of Ephesians. We're going to see a prayer here in chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. The second prayer is in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And it's rather remarkable when you see the, the amount of space that is given to recording these two prayers. It obviously highlights them as incredibly important. And the, the purpose of, of Paul recording these prayers, I think, is at least threefold. This is just by way of review of what we talked about last time. I think first, the purpose of recording these prayers is to encourage the readers that Paul is praying for them, right? And, and we've mentioned that before, but many times perhaps you have been encouraged or tried to be an encouragement to someone else. I know I myself am often encouraged when I uh, hear people are praying for me, and I try and return to encourage others that I am actively praying for them, thinking of them, asking for God's grace in their life. That is encouragement. And that's what Paul, at least one of the many functions of him recording this prayer, for them is to encourage the readers that he is indeed praying for them. But secondly, it also serves to inform the readers as to where they need to grow and progress. They have none other than the Apostle Paul himself praying a prayer for their spiritual betterment, growth, etc. Well, what areas do we need to focus on when it comes to our spiritual growth, etc.? Well, Paul gives us incredible insights into that as he is praying not only for where they need to progress, but then the third reason that I think this prayer is practical in how Paul records it here for them and for us is namely to instruct them regarding what to pray for themselves and others. In other words, Paul is modeling for us what a, an active prayer life should be like. What should we be praying for, for ourselves and those uh, fellow believers in the body of Christ? Well, this prayer here in chapter 1 and in chapter 3 is going to model that in a very practical uh, and profound way. Well, this prayer in chapter 1 is the prayer for enlightenment. In essence, this is the summary of where we left off last time. As we looked at this, bis this basic idea, this big concept, that I cannot live how I need to live without knowing what I need to know. 
However, I cannot know what I need to know without God revealing it to me. So we talked a lot last time about this idea of the necessity for enlightenment, that we need God to speak. And we need God to, to again, that word enlightened or illumination is the idea of, it's connected to that Greek, the Greek word is photizo, it's connected to the word uh, photo, photograph, phosphorescent. We have several words in English that have that root in them. But the idea is to flip on the light switch, if you will, in modern vernacular, to shine the light, to shed light on a situation. And it's, it's used idiomatically to refer to us coming to understand, to grasp biblical truth, biblical concepts. And this is, of course, what Paul is praying for. Now, last time, we were only able to march our way through uh, verse 15, 16, 17, and really kind of the first part of 18, but that was about as far as we got. And so I want to pick it up there this morning, and just, again, by way of review, we're talking about Paul and his prayer for enlightenment, but where we left off is Paul's actual request, that he's praying for enlightenment for the, the Ephesian believers, but he's praying specifically that God would enlighten them concerning three things. So our focus this morning is the three things that we need to know according to the prayer of the Apostle Paul. And what are these three things that we need to know? Well, they're recorded in verses 18 and 19, but then the, the, the third thing, as we'll see, is given multiple verses through the end of the chapter. And I don't know if we'll be able, for a second time, to finish all of the chapter here this morning. Uh, that's a lot of ground to cover. I'll give it my best shot, but I'm not worried about it. Uh, we'll, we'll just pause, and then uh, we'll pick it up after Christmas, because next week will be a, a special Christmas ser- sermon. We'll break from the Ephesians uh, study for, for that week, but but as we look at these three things that Paul is saying, we need to know. And so he's asking God to give us enlightenment on these three things. What are they? Number one, he's praying that we would understand the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and then third, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us. These are the three things that Paul wants us to know. In other words, for us to live meaningful, productive Christian lives, we need to be fully aware, deeply and profoundly convinced of these three things. And that's what Paul is praying for. So what are these three things? Glad you asked. Let's talk about it. All right. Let me reread verse 18. And well, let me just back up for context. Let's read the whole thing, right? Let's start back in verse 15. He says, wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love and of all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know, here's the first one, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Number two, what is the uh, glory of his inheritance in the saints, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And number three, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? Now, we'll, we'll keep reading, but notice those are the three things, and then he's going to really elaborate on that third one. He's going to spend several verses unpacking the idea of God's power. Uh, so he, he goes on in verse 19, end of the verse, he says, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. 
So our goal this morning is to look at these three things. And again, we may or may not make it to the end of the chapter, but let's begin our consideration of them. First on the list that Paul says is absolutely necessary for us to understand the grasp in order to live a profound and purposeful, productive Christian life is the concept that we are to know, to be fully convinced and understand, enlightened about the hope of his calling. Now, when we under, to understand this phrase, we have to realize the New Testament concept of hope. We'll talk about this much in our study of the book of Ephesians. We're introducing it here. We'll spend more time developing it, developing it particularly at the end of chapter 2, because Ephesians 2, he's going to make a big deal of this. But notice the New Testament concept of hope is different than our modern usage of the word. Often in modernity, we use this word with a level of uncertainty. I, I hope, I hope, I hope. And we use it as a synonym for I wish something were to happen. And we infuse into it a high degree of uncertainty. Biblical hope, or the Greek word for hope, is not a synonym with uncertainty. Rather, it is a settled awareness, a certainty but it, of a future reality. It just hasn't happened yet. So we're anticipating it. We're expecting it. So when Paul uses this phrase, the hope of our calling, what he's referring to is what you might call an expanded awareness and a settled confidence in the full implications of what God has called us to, both from eternity past all the way through eternity future. In other words, what he just finished singing about, the hymn from verse 3 to verse 14, that first section where he is singing the hymn to the triune God, what the Father has planned from eternity past, what the Son has performed in those recent days as Paul was writing, and of course what the Spirit is doing now and what it implies for the future. All of this certainty, the hope of our calling, the certainty of what God has called us to is what he wants us to come to an awareness of. So that's why I say it needs to be an expanded awareness and a settled confidence in the full implications that God has called us to from eternity past to eternity future. Now, this hope of our calling that Paul is praying for dramatically contrasts the state of the Ephesian believers, and by implication us as well, our state before salvation. Just flip over a page or two in your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. Well, like I said, we're going to come back and spend a lot more time developing this theme later in Ephesians chapter 2. But notice how it describes, let me just read verse 11 and 12. He says, wherefore, Paul speaking to the Ephesian believers, wherefore remember that you, being in time past Gentiles, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, he goes on to say that Jesus Christ, right, he has made us nigh by the blood. And we'll talk about that in due time. But recognize that these very readers of this original uh, book, the original audience to the book of Ephesians, Paul describes them as having been without hope. In their lost, fallen, Gentileness. he says, you were without God, you were without hope in this world. And yet now we see a, a very dramatic difference. Now for us to, again, appreciate this, it's helpful to recall the original state of the, of the readers. The book of Ephesians is written to believers in Ephesus. We've talked about this many times. But the Ephesians were incredibly pluralistic. They were deeply, profoundly pagan in that they worshipped and acknowledged multiple gods and goddesses before they became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we've talked about this of just a variety of different times in different contexts, but the more you understand about paganism, the more you can understand what Paul is driving at when he describes them as being without hope. The reality is that as pagans, the Ephesians could never have certainty in their future. Rather, they lived in fear, either of random fate or malevolent spirits that were out for their harm. If you understand, and we've talked about it before, but like Plutarch and his essay on the dread of the gods, and we could go to the, the prayer to any god that we've talked about before from ancient Mesopotamia. That's more Old Testament era. Plutarch would be more New Testament era. But the point is, paganism is replete with examples of people, pagans, that were worshiping the gods and goddesses and spirits, and, all, and they were exhausting themselves trying to appease every god and goddess and spirit, you know, demonic being out there, and they were never quite sure if they were doing it well enough. And so they were always living in fear and dread of the gods, as Plutarch puts it. But the reality is, that sort of life of uncertainty, the roller coaster of emotions that a pagan would experience regularly is contrasted dramatically by the Christian. That's what Paul is trying to get them to understand is that they now have hope, certainty, confident expectation in their coming uh, future and what they've been called to. So again, summarizing what we see throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul is characterizing that future, right? The idea of what we, uh, we, we hope now for a future experience. In other words, it's a confident expectation. That's what hope is. Biblical hope is. But Paul is characterizing our future hope as a time that God will bring all of the rebellious nations, right? Sorry, I clicked again. Don't worry, it's back. But Paul characterizes our future hope as a time that God will bring all of the rebellious powers under the sovereign headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about that a couple, three weeks ago when we looked at what God is doing in Christ, right? How he will gather together in one all things underneath the headship of Christ. Well, that is our prospect. As a believer, we can be confident that all things are going to be consolidated beneath the rulership, the head, the sovereignty of the headship of Christ. But believers will also experience their final redemption. We looked at this a couple of weeks back in chapter 1, verse 14. He describes that the Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He'll use a similar phrase later in the book in chapter 4, in verse 30, when he says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. The idea of the day of redemption, that there is coming a climax to human history where believers who have been sealed, right, purchased by the blood of Christ, sealed with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God being our earnest, our down payment of a future glorious inheritance, that is our assurance, our confidence. We can have hope in our calling that we have been called to this day of redemption where we will be delivered from sin, we will be delivered from death, we will be delivered from the wickedness of this world. And according to Paul and later in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27, we will be part of this body of Christ, the bride of Christ that will be presented as spotless, perfect. This idea of our destiny that we have is what grants to us Hope, confidence, expectation of what is coming. In other words, Paul insists that that knowing the truth about the future and one's place in these coming events provides great comfort for coping with the difficulties, injustices, and trials of this life. We won't go there for sake of time, but you could cross-reference 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Twice in that letter, 
Paul urges the Thessalonian believers to, quote, comfort one another with these words, end quote. In other words, he is giving them information that he, that about their future, about the second coming, about God making all things right, all things being reconsolidated beneath the headship of Jesus Christ. And when all things are put back in order and all things are restored the way God initially intended at creation, when that happens, as he says, all you know, tears will be wiped away. That's John's words, right, in, in the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from our eye. And that future reality, that first future certainty, is what gives us present hope. And we can comfort one another with these words. We can hold on in the midst of difficult times because we know this isn't the end, that in the end, all things will be made right. And that reality is, is immensely profound, but it's thoroughly Christian. Pagans couldn't hold to that. And it's, it's incredibly profound when you think about it. When you start thinking about what you're going through, have you experienced loss? Are you experiencing relational turmoil? Are you experiencing financial, the prospect of financial ruin? Are you experiencing a loss of health? And you feel like there's a loss, you're, you're having a hard time experiencing hope because you, you just don't know what tomorrow brings. Well, when you live life in that state, the answer, according to the Apostle Paul, is to become enlightened about the hope of our calling, to know that whatever you're going through right now, in the spectrum of eternity, it's just a blip on the radar. That if you're a believer in Christ, all things will be made right. Everything will be set straight. And any injustice or hardship or trial that you're experiencing now, it, it will be done away with. And we will have future blessedness, eternal blessedness with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that certainty of our future is what provides present hope. And Paul says we need to be thoroughly convinced of this. Otherwise, we will be weak Christians. We will be struggling on a day-to-day basis because of a total lack of hope and a teetering on the brink of despair. But Paul wants us to recognize not only the hope of our calling, but secondly, he wants us to recognize the riches of the glory of his inheritance. In other words, the second thing Paul wants us to know does not concern the certainty of our future, but the glory of it. In other words, the first thing he wants you to be aware of is the certainty, the hope of our calling, the certainty of our security in Christ, our future day of redemption that we will experience. But now the second thing he wants us to realize is the glory of it, that when we get there, It's going to be glorious, or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Now, this particular phrase can be read one of two ways, both of which are true. But when you think through what this means, when when he says that we are to come to an awareness of or be enlightened concerning the riches of the glories of his inheritance, it might be referencing either the inheritance that God gives to the saints— Or, some read that, and some translations reflect that, that it might be referencing the saints themselves as the inheritance that God receives. In other words, who is the his inheritance referring to? Grammatically, it could be referring to God or the believer. And so, the point is, it might be referencing the inheritance that God gives to us, that it would be the glory, the wealth, the riches, or that we ourselves are the glory and wealth and riches that God himself receives. 
So the idea would be that Paul either wants us to realize the immeasurable wealth that God possesses and of which we will partake in Christ. In other words, as David puts it in the Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd, so I will not want, I will never lack. I will never have need because he is my shepherd. In other words, Paul may be getting at that reality, which is also true because it's stated elsewhere in the scripture. But Paul either wants us to realize the immeasurable wealth that God possesses and of which we partake in Christ, or Paul wants us to realize that we ourselves are God's personal, cherished possession that he himself treasures. You can take that phrase either way. But both of these ideas are vital for us to understand. Both of these ideas are absolutely true because they define for us both our identity and our destiny. Our identity and our destiny. Identity being that I am the cherished possession of God. How much does God love me? Well, think about it. How much did he pay for, you know, to purchase me? It was the infinite value of the blood of Christ. That's what he paid for so that I could have a relationship with him. That's remarkable. Remarkable means worthy of remark. Do you think that's worthy of remark? Right? Should we pause and think about that a little bit? Talk about it a little bit? Absolutely. That's the concept, is that look at how much we are treasured by God. That's my identity. I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a child of the King. But my destiny is also embedded in this phrase. The idea is that look at what's coming. The wealth of the glory of the, of the inheritance we have in Christ. That is also true. Uh, chapter 2 in particular will highlight that. That is a very true concept, that the glory of heaven that awaits us. And I, I, in fact, I want to elaborate a little bit on that next week uh, in the Christmas sermon. So there's your plug. Come on back. Check it out. It'll be fun. But think about these two ideas for just a moment. I, I want to develop these because I, I mention them often through the book of Ephesians. But what are these ideas of identity and destiny? Well, I want you to understand how important and practical these are for us on a day-to-day basis. But identity and destiny are like parallel tracks, as one scholar put it, upon which our story runs. Our identity, our destiny. In other words, the questions, who am I and where am I going, are two of the most important self-defining questions I will ever have to answer. These are incredibly important. In fact, I often encourage people to use these chapters in the book of Ephesians, particularly chapters 1 through 3. But I often encourage people to use these chapters to meticulously calculate how much God loves you and then derive your identity from that. Let me elaborate on just a moment, on that for just a moment. In other words, don't listen to the world, the world philosophy that's out there, secularism, materialism, etc., Don't listen to the world, which says that you're an accident. You're meaningless. You're insignificant. You're worth no more than your bank account or your property value. Your only significance uh, is because of your beauty, productivity in the workplace, sexual exploits, humor, wealth, or fill in the blank. That's what the world teaches you, that you are ultimately an accident. You weren't meant to be here. So you actually have no purpose, and you have no destiny. And so the only thing that makes you significant in this life is that list, or, you know, you can elaborate, add to the list, but that's the only thing that you're worth. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad you're here, right? If you believe that, no wonder, Ephesians 2, 12, right, that you are without God and without hope in this world. Like, if that's it, then my bank account and my beauty and, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not looking too good. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm not worth much, but 
Paul says those who trust in Christ become children of the King of Kings. We're no longer strangers to God or enemies of God. He's going to develop this much more in chapter 2. We're no longer strangers to God or enemies of God. Rather, we have been adopted into his family. As such, we've received a portion of the inheritance from him who created all, sustains all, and owns all. That we are actually part of the family of God, and he has infinite resources. In other words, to put it another way, Bill Gates has nothing compared to God's resources. And I share in God's own estate. God knew me from eternity past, called me by his grace, destined me for, his, for a glorious existence in his presence for all of eternity. His plan is wise. His power is sufficient to carry it out. If that is the defining factor to my life, if that's what sets, that's the parallel tracks, my identity and my destiny, then it redefines, it revolutionizes my view of the world. It redefines my purpose, my meaning, my existence. Why I do what I do. What makes me get up in the morning? Well, it's the hope of our calling. The riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. But also, as we see here, his plan is not merely wise, but he also has the power to, sufficient, and to sufficiently carry it out. In other words, the third big idea that Paul wants us to grasp, and he really wants us to grasp this, because he spends five or six verses unpacking it. In other words, he gives us one line on the hope of our calling, one line on the glory of the you know, riches of riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints. But then he gives us several verses extrapolating on the exceeding greatness of God's power that is toward us. The third thing that Paul prays that we would understand is God's power toward us. And he goes on for several verses to elaborate on this concept. In fact, God's power is a major theme in the book of Ephesians. Paul will spend a lot of time fleshing out what this is, what it looks like, and the fact that we have already experienced it, that it is available to us as believers in Christ who have the word of God, the spirit of God, the work of Christ, the people of God. We have all resources necessary to live a life for God's glory. But I want you to consider, as Paul urges us to, I want to consider two things about this power that Paul wants to convince us of, and well, he's praying that God would convince us of it. I want you to consider first the infinite amount of God's power and then the incredible object of God's power, that we are the object, that all this power is directed toward us. But how much power? Well, we have to understand the infinite amount of God's power that is directed toward us. So let's contemplate that for just a moment. Now, I think it's rather remarkable, but Paul, in order to help us grasp God's infinite power, he uses what some scholars call ordinary grammar in an extraordinary illustration. In other words, what we see is that Paul is going to grammatically pile words one on top of the other in order to emphasize, quote, the exceeding greatness of God's power. Now again, if you're reading this, whether in English or even all the more in Greek, you see the, the emphasis that Paul is stretching the bounds of language in order to try and communicate the infinite amount of power that God possesses. The word itself, the word exceeding in Greek, is a compound word. It means overly above and beyond. Surplus of surplus. 
is the idea. That it's, it's, a, it's a way to try and pile words upon one another to give us the concept of God's infinite amount of power. As one scholar, by the name of, a Greek scholar by the name of Vincent puts it this way, he says, compound words are characteristic of Paul's intensity in, of style and mark the struggle of language with the immensity of the divine mysteries and the opulence of divine grace, end quote. I love that quote because he's a Greek scholar. He's studying the, the Greek of the book of Ephesians and he says, man, Paul uses, you remember this? We talked about this way back in our introduction, like two months ago. But Paul uses more words in the book of Ephesians that he doesn't use anywhere else in his writings. It's like he's using words, he's coining words, he's making up words. And he's he's taking two words and jamming them together, making compound words. And the idea is that when you just study the language itself, the Greek of the book of Ephesians, it's profound. And as Vincent puts it, it's illustrating this, this intensity of Paul's style. It's like Paul is, it, it, you can see the intensity coming out in his word choice, his vocabulary, his invention of words. Why? Because he's, he's illustrating, this is illustrating the struggle of language, with as Vincent call it, calls it, the immensity of divine mysteries and the opulence of divine grace. In other words, God's power, God's grace, God's plan from eternity past to eternity future is so opulent as he says here. It's so immense. It's so infinite and glorious that human language itself is insufficient to describe it. That's what Paul's trying to get us to grasp. And yet Paul wants to not only use grammar, words piling upon words to try and get this concept across, but he also wants to give us, in his mind, the most vivid illustration of God's power that he could invent. Now, if you were to think about this, I I have often tried to ponder through this myself. If you were asked, what is the greatest display of God's power, what would you say? Most of us would probably say something along the lines, well, creation. Maybe the Red Sea crossing. Red Sea crossing has been heralded by many as the greatest miracle God ever did. Some would say the fall of Jericho. We could add to the list all the various illustrations of God's infinite power that he has unveiled in historic ways throughout the history of redemption. But according to the Apostle Paul, the greatest demonstration of God's power that he could think of was the exaltation of Christ. The exaltation of Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me define that for just a few moments. Think about this with me. The term exaltation is a bit of a broad umbrella word that refers to several individual elements within the life of Christ. In other words, if we were to plot this in this next paragraph, right? And from verse 20 all the way to the end, verse 23 of the chapter, end of the chapter, that is. We would discover that Paul is highlighting multiple things about the exaltation of Christ. That is our, our umbrella word. What is God's greatest display of power ever in human history? Answer, the exaltation of Christ. What is the exaltation of Christ? It has several components. First, we have his resurrection from the dead. We have his ascension into heaven. His enthronement at the right hand of God. The the subjection of all of his enemies under his feet and his appointment as the head of the church. According to the Apostle Paul, there are five elements in this text that he wants to unpack that illustrate for us what God did, what God the Father did in exalting God the Son. And that it is that same power that God displayed in the life and ministry of Christ that is available to us as believers in Christ. Let's think about this for just a moment. 
The exaltation of Christ is a very big concept. Like I said, these five individual components. And, and we could, and these are just in this text. We could even add a couple more perhaps. But these are the, the five big ideas that Paul is using to underscore God's power displayed in Christ's exaltation. One scholar by the name of Robert Maddox puts it this way, that the exaltation of Christ is, quote, the point of intersection of Christology, eschatology, and ecclesiology, end quote. That's a fancy theological way of saying Everything in these realms of theology, what is theology? Theology is the study of God, the study of what God has revealed to us, whether about Christ, Christology, about end times, eschatology, or about the church, the nature, purpose, function of the church. Who are we? What are we supposed to be doing? That's ecclesiology. All of these things intersect. Where's the intersecting point where all of these theologies come together? It's in, according to Maddox, it's the exaltation of Christ. Because in Christ's exaltation, we see true Christology. He is God of very God, Lord of lords, King of kings. He's seated upon the throne. All enemies are subject unto him. And he is coming to make all things right. There's eschatology. He's coming back. He's going to fix this mess that we're in. But in the meantime, we are empowered by him, directed by him, purchased by him. That's the church. It's ecclesiology. Who are we? What are we supposed to be doing? How can we do what God has called us to do? We can do it because of the exaltation of Christ. And the same power that God used to exalt Christ, he has also infused into us through his spirit, through his word, in his body, the body of Christ, the believers. So think through these for just a moment. First, contemplate the resurrection itself. As he says, verse 19 Right? He wants us to understand the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This idea of the resurrection is a hugely important theme throughout the Bible. We don't have the time to go through them individually this morning. We have in various contexts in the past, and we will again in the future when time allows and opportunity permits, but several passages in the Old Testament anticipate God's reversal of the curse, his renewal of creation. This anticipation is met with the resurrection of Christ, which itself is even anticipating more to come. In other words, over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, we can march through a dozen passages. The Old Testament believer is longing for God to fix what's broken in this world. And one of the grand climactic promises of the Old Testament it doesn't appear until late in the Old Testament era, Book of Daniel, in fact, but it really unveils this concept of the resurrection, that there is coming a day where God is going to reverse the, the effects of the curse and death. God is going to triumph over death itself, and he's going to restore all things back to the way it was intended at the beginning. Well, all of those passages that anticipate that coming find their fulfillment in Christ, that Jesus' own resurrection from the dead is the greatest illustration of God overcoming the grave, God overcoming death as the result of sin. So this idea of the resurrection of Christ illustrates God's power and that he can make dead things come back to life. But according to the author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 10, this is merely a foretaste of what's coming. That Christ's own resurrection anticipates our resurrection. That if I'm a believer in Christ, if I'm a child of the king, if I'm, as it says here one of the, in Hebrews 2, 
if he can call me his one of his brethren, if that is true of me, then he says, we also are going to glory. We too will experience victory over the grave. Death is merely one of the enemies of God that will be put beneath the feet of Jesus in subjection to his rule. The resurrection of Christ demonstrates that. But not only that, also his ascension. Now, in my opinion, the ascension is one of the most underrated components of the life and ministry of Christ in theology today. We don't hardly ever talk about it. I love the ascension. One of the reasons for that is because in Jewish or also Greco-Roman literature, in fact, it was true of both cultures, ascensions... Ascension scenes in their literature implied a human being was taken away from the human world and transported to the world of the gods to be exalted above the earthly realm. It was this climactic moment that put the stamp of approval, the climax of a great career. You can think of Elijah, right? Being swept up into heaven by the chariots of fire. And that ascension scene is dramatic and it punctuates. It puts an exclamation point on the incredible career of Elijah. What an incredible man of God. One of my favorite Old Testament heroes. Impressive. We can see Greco-Roman literature had the same sort of thing, where they would, they would depict someone in their great military career, and they would try to accentuate the greatness of this character by them shedding this world and going to the next triumphant. Well, the ascension of Christ is the ultimate example of that that all of his enemies gather round, they conspire, they get him on the cross, they put him to death, and what happens? He rises from the grave and he floats away into glory. No one can touch him now. He's the victorious, exalted one. Dare try if you want, but you cannot overcome him. His resurrection, his ascension, really amplifies that. But often... And and Paul seems to break it out here, but we typically lump them together. The ascension of Christ is also a precursor to his enthronement. In other words, his enthronement at God's right hand is the natural result of his ascension. To put it this way, Jesus could have left in a myriad of different ways, but he left in a way that mirrored, mirrored a coronation ceremony. A coronation was a ceremony of crowning. When Jesus was transported up, he was installed as the Lord of all, the King of the universe. He was seated, enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And this idea is as he is enthroned, and then we'll get to it in a, in a second with the subjugation thing, but he was enthroned over all beings, whether it is spiritual, physical, in the demonic realm, the angelic realm, the anthropic realm, God has seated Christ as the preeminent ruler of all in the universe. In the resurrection, Jesus conquered death. In the ascension, Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father. As one scholar writes, he says, quote, the resurrection means Jesus lives, but the ascension asserts that he reigns. Both of these ideas are combined together underneath the big umbrella heading of the exaltation of Christ, but they're they're technically different components. The resurrection assures he lives, but the ascension and the enthronement asserts that he reigns. He is on the throne. We talked about this uh, a while back. We did a VBS adult class week, and we talked about the career of Christ. Some of you there were part of that. And as we talked through this idea, 
of Christ's ascension, or as I put here, in the ascent, Christ was granted a position of unparalleled honor that he did not possess in the hiatus between his resurrection and ascension. What we see in that act of ascension and enthronement, the idea is well illustrated. Are you all with me? How many of you have seen that old movie Lion King, the animated version? Remember this? I grew up with that. Okay, thank you. Several like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I had no idea what you were talking about before now, but now I'm with you. All right. No, I'm just kidding. But when I was a kid, it was one of my favorite movies, right? The Lion King. But when you think about it, do you remember the storyline? Okay. He's the, the son who's exiled because he thinks he's you know, guilty of killing his own father. And he has a total breakdown in his identity. So he flees because his evil uncle Scar, right, with the scar on his face, is lying to him. And so he runs off, only later to rediscover who he is. He's the rightful king. So he comes back and he faces his wicked uncle and he defeats Scar. Now, when that defeat happens, the battle scene, right, it's real dramatic, right, and the flames are going everywhere and their paws are slapping each other and all this. Well, when the victory is achieved, then what does he do? Do you remember the scene? He, he, he mounts the rock and he climbs up to the top. Can everyone roar with me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he issues a big roar, right? And when that happens, that is the equivalent of an ascension scene. It's a coronation. Now, he beat, he beat his uncle, right? There were no more claimants to the throne. He's the rightful king. But there's a ceremony of sorts where he marches forward, accepts the role as king, and asserts his dominance. He now rules the circle of life, right? Well, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, go watch the movie sometime, okay? But the point is, that's what, in a, in a sense, that's what the resurrection and ascension of Christ is. In the resurrection, he defeats his foes. He just beat the enemy. But he's going to now claim his place as the rightful ruler of the universe in the ascension and the enthronement. And that's what we have in, the, in these scenes. That's what Paul's trying to help us understand. But not only do we see the resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, but he also says... This idea, he highlights this idea of, of subjugation of Christ's enemies. He puts it this way, that Christ has been seated or enthroned far above all principality and power and might and dominion, that he's put all things under his feet. This is really important biblical language, these phrases, far above all principality, power, might, dominion, right? And again, notice his, his, his verbiage. Paul is really good at using multiple words to try and get the picture across. But all things are under the feet of Christ. If you were to study these words in particular, you would, you would discover that they echo Psalm 8, which itself is a reflection of Genesis chapter 1 and implies the right to rule all things. In Genesis chapter 1, God created my, mankind in his own image and he placed them as the kings of the earth, the rulers of all of creation. In Psalm 8, David marvels at this. He says, Lord, who is the Son of Man, humanity, that you would visit him, that you would appoint him and place all things under his feet? Those, those phrases refer to absolute subjection of all enemies to Christ. In fact, it's interesting to note that Jewish interpreters, contemporary to the New Testament, applied this promise, that is the promise of Genesis 1 and Psalm 8, 
They applied this promise to the nation of Israel at large. That we as a nation will one day have all enemies under our feet. But I think it's interesting that Paul takes that phrase that was contemporary in Jewish Jewish literature and he applies it specifically to Christ. That Jesus, as the Lord of all things, he is the Lord of the universe, it's him that all things are put under the subjection of him. All things are under his feet. He is Lord of all. Which again, this idea is, is all the more potent when we place it in original context. Recall that Ephesus was the center for the magical arts in the ancient world wherein the names of various gods or spirits are essential in order to conjure them up. Yet our text implies, it's not just implies, it states emphatically that Jesus is above every name that is named. He says, you think about, and this is, and that, that's what I mean, when you hear that phrase, every name that is named, whether in this world or the one to come, all names that are named, for an Ephesian to hear that, they would be thinking, in their, you know, from their paganistic background, they would be thinking of all the gods and goddesses and spirits and demons and all of these entities that you name their name and you conjure them up and you try to cast spells and all of the, all the magical arts there that were located in, in Ephesus. But Paul here insists. It doesn't matter what name you name. It doesn't matter how many names you name. All of them are in subjection to Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And this reality would have provided incredible comfort to the Ephesian believers. They need no longer fear the fickle or malicious deities, but merely pray to the Lord of hosts. They can pray to one being, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. But Paul wants to take this exaltation of Christ one step further. He wants us to recognize that it also includes his, Christ's, appointment over the church. That Christ has been exalted and appointed as the head of the church. This final stage of Paul's rehearsal of God's power displayed in Christ's exaltation consists of Christ appointed as the head of the church. Now, we'll spend much more time on this in future weeks, but the term church appears nine times in the book of Ephesians. And there are four primary metaphors that Paul uses to describe what the church is. He describes how we're a family, we're a body, we're a temple, and we're an army. And we're going to spend time unpacking each of those because of how important they are to illustrate and define who we are as a church. But in this text, Paul is developing the idea of Christ as the head of the body. The images of head and body that we see here in Ephesians 1 will reoccur in Ephesians chapter 4, but they were common in both Greek and Jewish cultures to represent things like leadership, authority, and sometimes even the idea of provision. The head is provides for the body, directs the body, rules as authoritative over the body. So Paul, it's interesting, will use this metaphor elsewhere in Romans and 1 Corinthians, for instance, to stress that the church is a community of diverse yet interdependent members. We talked about the body of Christ, that some of us are, you know, head, arm, well, Christ is the head. Some of us are arms, some of us are feet. And he says we, we all have different role to play in the overall body. And, and Paul will develop much about that in, in other places, particularly Romans and 1 Corinthians. But it's only in Colossians and Ephesians that Paul expands this image to include the idea that Christ is the head. He's the leader of this new community. That Christ is the head is what he wants to emphasize in the books of Colossians and Ephesians. 
And the point is, according to verse 23, this points out that, that through this union, Christ the head, the church, his body, it is through this union that the church not only receives God's power, but also represents the ongoing presence and ministry of Christ on the earth. That he is the head of the body that fills the earth. That God is using us to be his hands and feet in this world. And that concept is incredibly profound. And Paul's going to spend a lot of time unpacking that later in the book. That what does it look like to be part of the body of Christ? If he's our head and we are receiving power and direction from him, and if, you know, what does that look like? Well, this is the life that you ought to live. If you are a member of the body, that's Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So the concept here that Paul is wanting us to understand is that the head of the church is a victorious, powerful Lord. On this basis, Christ can impart to the church all of the empowering resources it needs to resist the attacks of powers and to engage in the mission of filling the world that God has called them to. We have everything we need because Christ, the exalted Lord, has been appointed as the head of the church. God is fulfilling his plan through the church, which takes its direction and receives its nourishment and resources from the exalted Christ. The mission of the church is to, fulfill, is to fill the world in every place with the redemptive message of Jesus Christ. More on that later. But let me, for just the last few moments, contemplate not only the infinite amount of God's power, but here's the last idea I want you to understand, is the object of God's power. Paul does not want us to simply see that God's power is infinite and is immeasurable. It's more than that. He wants us to understand the, the infinity of that power, but it's more. He wants to, us to recognize a unique aspect of that power, namely that it is directed toward us, that we are the recipients of God's power, that we are the objects infused with God's power. And God's power and love are not impersonal forces operating in the world that one needs to discover. Rather, our God is a personal God who has brought us near to himself. He has given us his own power. And what's fascinating is, again, we could really wrap in here the Trinity stuff that we saw from chapter 1, but the power of God the Father is available through God the Spirit because of the work of God the Son. And this is all made available to us. But, notice this, Paul here models this idea of how do we access that power? It's infinite, it's available, but how do we access it? We access it through, what's Paul doing? Praying. We access it through prayer. We come to God asking for his power to work. Now, let me make a, a, a simple applicational point before we try to summarize these ideas with song and dismiss. When we work our way through the book of Ephesians, we're going to see that the power of God is available to us as believers, but it's available to accomplish eight very specific things. And we won't extrapolate all eight here this morning, but recognize when you think about God's power available, right? This is like the most quoted verse in high school football amongst Christians, <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Philippians chapter four. And they say, I can become an NFL star because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? 
Well, okay, you're kind of taking that verse a little out of context, but does it mean that God gives us power to do anything we want? No, rather, God's power, his limitless resources are available to us to do what? Ephesians gives us a very sharp, pointed edge to the purpose of the power of God. God is working in us to give us the power to do these things. First, he wants us to resist the power and influence of demonic spirits. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Second, he's given us his power to accomplish a variety of good works throughout our lifetime. That he has created us unto good works, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. He has also given us his power to overcome cultural divisions and live in unity with others that are different from themselves in the local church. Chapter 2, and then he'll revisit that in chapter 4. He's given us power to be unified as a church. He's given us power to develop things like patience, humility, and gentleness, according to chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He's also given us power to have less self-centeredness and to live in a way that reflects the self-sacrificial love of Christ for the benefit of others, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. He has given us his power to serve the body of Christ in accordance with one's giftedness, chapter 4. He has given us the power of God to get rid of such ungodly practices out of our lives, such as sexual immorality, greed, lying, anger, rage, stealing, dirty talk, alcohol abuse. God has given you power to root these things out of your life, according to chapter 4 and 5. And then he says, God has given us the power to develop healthy, Christ-centered family relationships, according to chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 10. In other words, Ephesians is very specific on what God's power is intended to do in your life. It doesn't mean God's going to guarantee that I become a bodybuilder and the strongest man on earth. I'm just saying. I probably don't have a lot of hope of that. You know what I'm saying? But that's not why God gave me his power. He gave me his power to make me look like Jesus in this world. So with that said, I want to sing a song. Daniel, come on up. All right. And I want to consider this power of God available to us. And I want to do it by singing an old hymn that goes, this is several hundred years old, and it goes all the way back to Martin Luther. 